What's up everyone, welcome to the Tier 1 Podcast. Today on the show I'm joined by my own brother, Bob, who is an incredibly talented uh, tattoo artist and someone who I really admire. Obviously I guess everyone looks up to their older brothers a little bit, but Bob's had such an influence on my life and the kind of things I'm interested in. And I guess, I don't really, probably don't ask people for advice as much as I should, but I think if I was ever ever kind of struggling with something, I think Bob would probably be on the top of that list of people I'd come to for advice. And, you know, he's my brother, but he's, um, you know, he's, he's got his own family now because he's a little bit older than, than I am. And, yeah, I love my uh, my nieces, and, and they're crazy, but they're, they're great as well. And I don't get to see any of them as much as I should or would like to, I guess. Um, so that's why it's really nice to kind of go and hang out and uh, record this episode with them at their house. And I hope you guys enjoy it as much as I did. It was great to just learn a bit more about my brother and um, yeah, spend the uh, two hours together, which we, um, I guess, wouldn't normally... Uh, do otherwise. So here's the episode. Uh, go follow um, Bob on Instagram or Facebook and have a look at his awesome work. It's uh, BFH underscore tattoo. And um, yeah, let me know what you think about the uh, podcast. Here it is. All right. So we're recording. Mm-hmm. Bob, thanks for coming on the podcast. So right. I guess you're slightly obliged to do it. A little bit. <laughs> Being <laughs> a brother and you've already been on a podcast, podcast veteran. I'm an old pro, mate. Yeah. Um, so like I just said, um, I'm going to try and approach this uh, as if I didn't know you very well, okay. and of course. That, I mean, to a certain extent, I guess, you know, I don't. There's, there are, you know, you're eight years older than me, is it? Yep. Eight years is where I didn't know you, and then there's a good five years where I'd barely have any memories as it is <laughs> in my memory. Um, I'm a mystery. Yeah, mis- international man of mystery now, and I've been on planes and everything. Yes, sir. <laughs> uh, so... I guess um, I usually start them off by asking about kind of family and where you grew up. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess I'll change the question and say, what was it like for you those first years? What have you what you remember before I got, came around? Before you came around? Oh, it was great. <laughs> it was, <laughs> you ruined everything. Savage. <laughs> <laughs> I was an only child. I got spoiled rotten. You turned up, wrecked my... Uh, my, my good gig. Um, no, it was, I don't know, like, I was a kid. It's not that much I remember of it before you turned up, to be honest. Um, I mean, me and mum, it's just us for a long time. Moved around a bit. Um, yeah, it's just mostly just like school things I remember from being back then. Um, nothing really happened. You, you went to St. Urban's, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah, I remember when it was like the old building down in Meatwood and it looked like Hogwarts. Oh, so it wasn't it wasn't like where it is now, was it? I I was there when it moved. Okay. So I was there at the start and then I think I was in like year four when they moved us. Um and then same thing in high school, I was at the old building when they moved out into the new one as mm. well. Um but yeah, so like me and Mum lived uh down uh, like Clarendon Road at one point and used to walk up from there through Headingley all the way to school like really long walk every day mm. just me and mum in like a flat um, and then we moved to Meanwood um, I think I started school late 
because I think if I remember rightly, me and mum were like kind of homeless and uh, staying with family and stuff. So I started school a few months late, um, which didn't really bother me at the time. Um, yeah, did it, they did used it to seem... uh, they used to let me like nap under the tables, which none of the other kids did. Hmm. And for, I think it was something that I did at nursery. And because I'd started late, they kind of gave me some special dispensation and let me just crawl under the table for a nap whenever I couldn't be bothered. <laughs> and uh, but I I was heard as well like. You were really good, you know, at school because. Oh yeah. Was, yeah, like, was mum quite hard on you? Like those first few years, like. I don't remember it being particularly hard on me. Like when I was in primary school, I mean, not education wise. Mm-hmm. Um, I used to read a lot. I think she encouraged me to do that. Um, yeah, I think. I mean, from what I'm told, obviously, I don't remember a lot of this stuff. But yeah. The story goes that first parents' evening we had. My reception teacher told my mum that there was nothing she could really teach me. In, I mean, obviously not, not nothing she could teach me as a you know she's an adult and a teacher, but um, in terms of her curriculum, yeah, at that at that year. Um, so there were talks about bumping me up a year, but mum didn't want to take me away from friends and stuff. But when I was four years old, I don't think friends really matter at that point. <laughs> um, but yeah, for whatever reason, we didn't do that. Um, but yeah, I think I could read and write before I started school. Um, and yeah, I think all throughout primary school, I was always like a bit of a swat and, you know, first kid to have my hand up and all that kind of stuff. But mm. I, I've got yeah quite good memories of primary school for the most part. Um, up and down at home, same as most people. But um, yeah, I think your dad came along when I was uh, six or seven. Um, what was that like? Cool. Yeah, it was fine. Uh, we got on. He used to buy me toys, so it was all good. <laughs> <laughs> I think he used to, yeah, um, sweeten the deal with Power Rangers, which I was a big fan of. <laughs> and then, yeah, you turned up. Do you remember mum telling you that I was going to be, obviously? That you were coming? Yeah. I don't remember the conversation, no. Um, I remember when you were born... Because I had to go and stay with Grandma and Grandad in Middlesbrough. And then came back to meet you. Um, I remember that day. That was cool. Came back with Grandma and Grandad, so everyone was there at the same time, really. Um, And then when Semfra was born, me and you both did the same thing. Went to Middlesbrough, came back to meet her too. Um, When did you get me that bunny rabbit? The rabbit? God, I don't even remember. Don't know, it was... No, don't remember that. (laughs) Um, A lot of that kind of time, I think it's just like little snippets, do you know what I mean? Of being in that house and got more memories of kind of playing out and the people I was around at the time. And um, obviously like Raoul and Peter, um, school. That's pretty much it. How did you end up... Did mum know Peter before she moved to Meanwood? I don't think so. Mm. so um, kind of, as far as I know, I think it was just chance that we ended up living next door to each other. Right. But it was one of those streets where, like, I mean, people would just leave their doors open. And, you know, if you knew them well enough, you'd just wander in. Do you know what I mean? Like, right. Peter's front door was always open. Mm. If his door was shut, you knew he wasn't in. If he was home, his door was open. 
and you just walk in. There'd always be like music playing and, you know, people like hanging out and smoking or whatever. And, and yeah, it was just kind of that sort of little, like kind of community, like of all his friends and us. And there was other neighbours on the street that it was one of those kind of things where people would like, you know, borrow each other's phones and cups of sugar. And I don't want to, like, it wasn't, I don't want to make it sound like a kind of nice village community atmosphere because it wasn't like that it was it was kind of shitty like Mm. it was you know it was a council estate and it was more just people being overly familiar if nothing else like I remember once a woman came over saying it was an emergency and she needed to use our phone and I don't think mum was particularly good friends with her um and someone was like yeah of course of course use the phone and then she rang her mate to ask if she was coming out tonight kind of thing and one of those kind of things um like on the other side of us was uh Christine and Liam, like single mum and her son, um, and they could, you know, borrow hair dryers and cups of sugar and stuff. And then on the left side of us, it was yeah, it was Raul and Peter, um, and yeah, like we'd always kind of hang out in the back garden, like over the fence, like hop each other's fences, and you know, sit in the garden, whatever, play. Um, but no, they did. They didn't know each other before we moved there. Uh, it was just one of those things, that yeah. kind of like friendships that came up, really. So, um, at what point did you get into playing video games? Playing video games? Um, do you know what? It was kind of here and there, because I, I, when I was younger, when we were younger, we never had like the latest consoles or anything like that when they came out. I always kind of got things like secondhand or, you know, when it was already a little bit outdated or kind of down the line. So, um, it was, I remember I opened my bank account in Headingley and they, it came with a free Game Boy Pocket. So like not even a Game Boy Color, just like the smaller version of the black and white one. How old are you now? Uh, I think I was about 10. Okay. Um, and other than that, there was like your dad's stepdad had, um, a ZX Spectrum. So he lived in Hyde Park at the time, and whenever we went to go and see him and, like, your Uncle Vashko, um, I think he lived there at the time as well. Uh, or he might have just been there a lot, I'm not sure. Um, he'd dig out this old ZX Spectrum. I don't know, have you ever played on one of those? No. It was like this... Um, I mean, if anyone's listening to this, they're going to be... Obviously, telling, kind of explaining the obvious, but it's like a black kind of quite chunky keyboard with rubber keys and you'd plug a tape machine into it like you know literal like cassette mm. tape um like an audio cassette and then uh you would get the games would come on the cassettes and they also had this code you had to type in to load it so it would be this massive long string of like random digits and numbers and you know um punctuation and things and you'd have to type on this this really long string to get this thing to load and it would take half an hour an hour to load up and then you'd get this kind of like you know 8-bit game thing on it and there was this like like a kind of road rash rip-off kind of game on there and this thing called attic attack i remember um so i played things like that but mostly it was playing at friends houses like i remember the kid next door liam had um had a snes I'd go around there and we'd play uh, like Street Fighter and things, Mortal Kombat. Um, my cousin Alex, 
had one as well. I remember playing Aladdin at his house. So it was mostly just like playing games at friends' houses, like friend like with original PlayStation. Oh, in fact, no, I remember my dad got. Uh, he says he got it for me, but it lived at his house, <laughs> so it was a, a NES, the original like Nintendo right. entertainment system that came with Mario and Duck Hunt. And I had... Uh, I remember that. Actually, yeah, yeah, like with the gun that you shoot yeah. the telly. And I had um, a Batman game called Return of the Joker as well that I remember at the time was quite hard. Um, so I played a lot of like that, like Mario and Duck Hunt and Batman. Um, and there was like some sort of Camelot game that I just couldn't get my head around. It was just loads of menus and as a kid I just didn't understand it. But um, that lived at his house when he lived the time. He lived in Pudsey. And obviously I only saw him at weekends and didn't play it all that much anyway, so... That was a bit later on anyway. But yeah, then mostly just playing consoles with friends, really. And then I remember we got, um, me and you kind of pulled our pocket money and mum chipped in a bit and we bought a GameCube. Yeah. Um, the silver one that came with Zelda, Wind Waker. Um, that was the first one I think we had in the house. Um, I remember Raoul had like a, a second-hand N64. Yeah. And me and him would play um, Ocarina of Time on there. But that, like, yeah, well, we used to go around and kind of play that game over and over again. Um, But, yeah, I think the first one that we actually owned from, like, brand new was that GameCube. Yeah, I remember that. I remember we got um a PS1 as well, like, not... The original version, like the big square grey one, it was like that small yeah, curved white one. version, like the PS, you know, one O N E, and uh, we played like Metal Gear Solid on that, and Final Fantasy Seven. Yeah, I remember doing that as well. Yeah, <laughs> probably just more. Watching I was never that bothered about yeah. Final Fantasy to be honest. I think because I was also hooked on Zelda, mm. that I just wasn't really fussed about it. And then I remember when I moved into that box room when Semfra was born, because um, me and you shared a room, the big one, for a while with bunk beds and then I moved out into the box room that became Semfra's later on and I had a wardrobe with a little shelf in it and a tiny kind of TV in there and um, I had the GameCube in there and I'd just kind of sit on the end of my bed with this little GameCube in a telly inside a wardrobe and play stuff on there all the time really I think when I, when I was like in high school and college and stuff, I remember just spending most most of my time on that. But that was really late on, like I'm talking like back end of high school, start of college, so I was like, you know, 15, 16. Yeah. Um, I never had a TV in, in my room before that. Because um, we, we weren't particularly well off, so it was quite a big deal having a second telly and, you know, a home console, things like that. So yeah, yeah. So what was it like when you when you got to high school and you're like, was it? It's eleven when you're at high school, is it? I think. Uh, yeah, like twelve, I think. Yeah. What What did you want to be then? Do you remember if you still had a? I didn't have a clue. That was the thing. I think for a long, long time, I just didn't have a clue. Um, it took ages to figure it out. Really, like I did. Just whatever everyone else was doing in terms of education. That's the only reason I went to sixth form. Um. The subjects I chose to do at A-level were just things that I thought I'd enjoy rather than any sort of purpose or career Mm. direction. So I did like art and politics, psychology and computing. Um, I dropped art because it was the workload and the 
the expenses of all the uh, materials you needed to buy, we couldn't afford it. Um, but yeah, like I, I didn't really have a plan. I didn't. I knew I didn't want to go to uni yet because it cost a lot of money, and I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I thought it was just going to be a waste. But I ended up dropping out of sixth form because it just didn't didn't really you know appeal to me. I I've always been good at um, exams and working whilst I'm at school. Like I would pay attention in class, I would learn things, and when exams came around, I would remember it, and you know I'd do really well at exams. But as soon as it came to doing anything on my own time, like coursework, I just wouldn't. I just couldn't do it. I didn't have the motivation. I'd rather be doing different things. I liked getting home and knowing that the school day was done. And I'm still like that now with work. Like I keep working home very separate. Um, so that kind of screwed me over with uh, with college because so much of it was just about doing work on my own at home. So about six months in, I remember being in a psychology lecture and teacher was like, well, at this point, you should be pretty much done with all your coursework. And I was just like, well, see you later. <laughs> That's not, I haven't done any of that. Um, and I just knew I wasn't going to see it through. So I spoke to mum about it and ended up dropping out. And uh, a family friend of ours, Joe, um, took me on like volunteering. Like, there's like a program they were running. Yeah, in the youth service. Take, take me back a little bit though, because um, you're saying um, you know in primary school it's still quite quite swatily, but then mm. it, it changed a bit for you in, in high school. Yeah, I don't really know what happened. Um, I mean, I was still swatty. Like I was, in in a sense, like I was in the top set for everything, and I'd do like extracurricular programs in the summer holidays for like you know doing maths at the uni, like A-level maths in high school and things like that. So like I was, I was clever. Um, and I even liked the work. I enjoyed it. Like I did, you know, like as long as it was on that allotted time where I knew I'm at school, I'm here to learn and I'm going to do it. Like, obviously we all fucked about and stuff and got in trouble, but for the most part, you know, I'd pay attention in class. I would do the work and I was good at it. Um, and anything exams wise, anything that came around like that, I could, you know, I smashed it. I didn't, I didn't revise because that was something I had to do in my own time, and I wasn't, um, <laughs> I wasn't willing to put that time in. And I, I don't know, like I don't want to point the finger at anybody because you know ultimately it's only me that can do it. But I don't think it was that sort of home environment that really encouraged. Um, you know, mum wasn't particularly uh, on the ball with like checking if I she'd, she'd ask, "Have you got homework?" And I'd just say, "Nah," and she'd be all right then. Like she wouldn't check. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Um, so I just wouldn't do it. So the mo- I got in detention all the time. Um, I was in loads of trouble for things. I was just not doing homework and coursework, and I would put things off. Like I remember my English GCSE coursework that you do in year 10, I handed in the back end of year 11 before it got sent off to the, to be moderated for your exams. So not even like for the deadline. It was uh, way, way past that. And I just, every week I'd make up an excuse. And in the end, I think teachers just gave up asking. Um, but yes, that's always been the thing with me, just... If I'm there to learn, I'll do it. If I'm there to work, I'll do it. 
But if um, as soon as I'm on my own time, that's my time. And I've just oh, I don't know where that came from or when that started, really. I think because primary school was never particularly homework heavy. Mm. Um, as soon as it came in high school, I was just wasn't ready for it, I guess. And I think that's where things started to kind of slip a little bit academically. Um, what was, because yeah. while you were at high school, kind of, I guess, um, I'm getting, you know, a little bit older and I guess mm. our relationship kind of starts to come mm. together. What what was, what was us as a group like? What were like me and you and yeah. Sam Fraud, just me and you or well, both? Yeah, both. I guess. I mean, there was, there was always a big age gap. gap. So, um, your dad was working away a lot because he was working in TV. Um, so he kind of went where the work took him. So he'd be away for days or weeks at a time. Mum was working full time. Um, so I think, I mean, I remember it being, um, I don't know, almost like a kind of co-parent. Really like, you know, I'd change your nappies and put you to put you down for naps, like take you for walks around the street to calm you down and make you tea, put you to bed, all that kind of stuff really. Like um obviously not constantly, not every day. You know, mum did her share, but yeah, I was kind of in that role really. So it was it was weird. Like me and you, when you were a bit older we'd kind of, we'd watch wrestling. And like wrestle on the sofas and stuff, and we'd play and things. But for the most part, there was such a big age gap, which is more pronounced when you're younger, isn't it? Yeah. I think, you know, eight years between me and you now isn't that big a deal, but eight years when you're four and I'm twelve, yeah, is you know a lot more, a lot bigger. Um. So yeah, it was more kind of, uh, yeah, just taking care of you guys rather than being proper I don't know like like you know siblings or in the traditional sense mm. but maybe maybe that is traditional I don't know maybe it is more common for siblings to you know raise each other and things I suppose you'd like walk us to school and stuff like that I remember yeah, yeah. Like, a lot yeah. of the time all that stuff you know when you were crying or whatever mum would ask me to walk you around the street in the pram just to get you to sleep um you know, in the night, you guys would sometimes cry for me rather than mum or your dad. Um, so yeah, did a lot of that, and it stood me in good stead for when I had my own kids. Like all kind of came flooding back, really kind of picked it up pretty quickly. Mm. Um, but yeah, that was how it was. So um, you finish high school and you kind of go to college, drop, mm-hmm. eventually um, decide it wasn't for you and yeah. leave that. Um, and then yeah, what what that's kind of where you stopped living in with us, and then yeah, I my, moved out at yeah. seventeen. Yeah, um, and I'm kind of like from that point, obviously, I don't really know. Yeah, so it, that was God. There was a lot that happened around then. Um, so before that, um, there was a few years where I didn't see my dad because of things that went on with him and his ex-wife. She kind of got in the way of our relationship for about five or six years from when I was nine. And then um, me and your dad, you know, me being a teenager and stuff, we, we clashed heads a lot. Um, you know, we used to fight, like literally, 
Um, and it just got, there was that and, you know, what was going on with college and there was just such a big kind of period of flux for me that I think I just needed a clean break really. And uh, I had a friend who had um, a spare room going in her house in Hyde Park, friend Alison, and um, spoke to mum and decided it probably best if I just left and went there. So moved out, kind of lied on the uh, tenancy paperwork <laughs> about my age to sign for that. Um, and yeah, moved in with Alison and some of the friends, like people I'm still friends with now, actually. Was that quite a hard decision for you? Or? Not really. No. At the time, things were so kind of rough at home that I was just happy for the escape. Like, I'd stay with friends a lot of the time anyway. Mm. Sofa surfed quite a lot at that, that time. I wasn't around at home all that much just because it was just wasn't a great place to be at the time. Um, so, yeah, when the opportunity came to get out permanently... Kind of jumped on it and mum was okay with it, so I went. Um, what was those first initial weeks like for you? It was it was cool. Like, it was exciting, you know. Like, I was out in the real world and in my own place. Well, my own room in a, you know, an adult house where people kind of let me, left me to my own devices as you would with an adult. Um I had lots of friends that lived around in the area, kind of people that are a bit older than me. Um, and then it wasn't long before, you know, my friends my age were all moving out and going to uni and living in Hyde Park anyway. So that was good. Um, but I was really unprepared. I didn't have a clue how to budget or, you know, manage how to survive, really. I got in a lot of debt. Um, as soon as I turned 18, bank offered me overdrafts and credit cards and loans and stuff and I just took all of it for no reason. Nothing to show for it. But then, um, yeah, I would go to a lot of gigs up and down the country. Um, the work I was doing at the time, so I was still volunteering, but I'd get like allowances with like housing benefit and things. Um, but then... And then like a small allowance on top. But it wasn't really enough to cover my bills and stuff. And that's where a lot of the debt came from. Um, I was working part-time at Pizza Hut when I was like 16, 17. But then they offered, asked me if I wanted to train to be a manager. And I panicked and quit <laughs> on the spot. Because <laughs> 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 I didn't want didn't to have a career at Pizza Hut. And <laughs> look at my boss at the time who was... Don't get me wrong, he was a he was a lovely bloke, like really, really good manager as well. And I still friends with him on Facebook. He's a really nice man. But, you know, he's quite a bit older than me at the time and I thought, God, I don't want to be, you know, thirty, forty years old working at Pizza Hut. So yeah, when they asked me to train as a manager, I was just like, I quit. Mm. <laughs> so then I had no money. Um and yeah, I didn't have a clue what I was doing really. Alison kind of taught me how to survive and uh, train me up, house train me, how to, you know, wash up and do laundry and take care of myself, all that kind of stuff. That was great. And she taught me a lot about tattooing, which is kind of where that connection came in. You know, she's, uh, well, she's Australian originally and she's back there now in uh, Brisbane. 
Um, but at the time she worked at Ultima Skin in Leeds City Centre. So she did a lot of my first tattoos and just from living with her, like learned how the industry worked and what her day-to-day kind of routine was like in terms of drawing and things like that. Like it seemed like she had, in terms of her schedule, like quite a lot of freedom. I mean, I know now that that's not really the case, (laughs) but it, it always looks quite exciting. And, um, at the time the the girl I was with, we'd been together, we met at Pizza Hut and we'd been together for about four years. Um, and I think at the time it was only a couple of years and, um, she wanted to travel and I didn't have any qualifications and I was thinking, well, what, what would I do? You know, how, where would I work and things? And I thought, well, you know, tattooing is the kind of thing you can travel with. And I thought, yeah, I can, I'd love to do that. Um, but it didn't work out that way because of all the debt and stuff like to, to learn how to tattoo, you need to do an apprenticeship and not make any money for a year or two. And I had, you know, debts and bills to pay. So I had to get normal jobs, worked in retail and, uh, um, yeah, I moved to Huddersfield when the girl I was with at the time went to uni there. Um, got a job in retail. So I quit the youth service thing. So I was volunteering for about nine months and then I got a paid job. And then I was supposed to get um, a kind of job that had been pretty much promised to me at the time. We were told we were shoo-in for some funding that didn't come through. And I just got quite disillusioned with the whole thing and uh, quit that. Went to go work in retail at Game Station in Huddersfield. I started as a Christmas temp and then worked my way up to assistant manager. Um, And yeah, just from there, bounced around various jobs. Like worked in a Greasy Spoon cafe and I uh, worked in call centres and all sorts of stuff, really. How did it end up linking back around to tattooing them? So... It was when I was working at British Gas and uh, things weren't going so well there. Like I'd, I'd worked my way up to like a decent kind of quite cushy position there where I was doing a lot of training, like training new staff and rolling out training from new uh, regulations that had to go out to everybody. And I was good at it. Like when I did the youth service stuff, like I did a qualification in training and presentation skills and it's something I've always been quite good at. Um so yeah, I was I was enjoying that a lot, but then office politics, you know, you stick your head above the parapet and somebody wanted my job, I think, and uh, kind of managed me out to a point where I jumped before I was pushed, really. Um, and at that point, I mean, I, I could have kept my job, but I would have been bumped down to kind of my starting uh, position because everything I'd done... Um, worked my way up from my original contract was all kind of temporary, you know, secondment stuff. Uh, whereas my, my only permanent contract was basic phone monkey call centre stuff. And I'd worked there for like three years and worked my way up, I think, a good three rungs above where I'd started. But none of it was permanent. So, uh, yeah, when they bumped me back down, I would have had to kind of go back to square one and I'd put in so much work and I didn't want to do it. So I just quit. And then I had two weeks off. was kind of despairing a bit at the start. Spoke to a friend who showed me 
this Gumtree advert for a tattoo apprentice. Because I'd always talked about it and they said, you know, why don't you, why don't you go and do it? So at that point I'd paid off most of my debts. Um, and then, yeah, it took two weeks to get my portfolio together, which in hindsight, it was terrible. Like if someone came to me with that portfolio now, I'd you know laugh them out of the shop. Was, but, it, was it just the quality of it? Or was yeah, it, it was I mean, all sorts. It was presented badly. It was quite obviously rushed. Just lots of line drawings, like not a lot completely painted. And yeah, like the, you could tell there wasn't that much work put into it. And even the stuff that, you know, I had done wasn't particularly high standard. Had you kept up your drawing at all since you kind of stopped doing art? Not particularly, no. Not really. Did a little bit here and there, but nothing major. Um, so, yeah, I saw this advert for this thing on Gumtree. And I, uh, as the story goes, I called them on the Friday, had an interview on the Saturday, and then I started on the Monday. So it was, you know, the first place that I looked at and they said yes. <laughs> so, I mean, it, it wasn't it wasn't great. They just, uh, they wanted cheap labour. Hmm. Um, so tell me like a story of what like an average day might have been like for you there. Oh God. I mean, I, I'd work, events. I'd work six days a week. Um, and to be fair to them, they paid expenses. I got 200 quid a month, which is more than most apprentices get. You know, most don't get anything. You're supposed to kind of save up money or work a bar job in the evening or something to kind of, you know, live at home to uh, see yourself through. And I didn't have any of that. I was living with my ex in Headingley. So I managed to kind of make my own letter at work explaining what my position was in a way that wouldn't get them in trouble. That I was kind of doing some like unpaid training and uh, got them to sign it, kind of made up a letterhead, took it to the uh, the job centre, and then they gave me benefits, like housing benefit, mm. council tax benefit and stuff. And I think I got in just at the end of when you could still do that before the Tories changed it. They changed the, the, the law where if you were doing a job that could be reasonably expected to be paid work, then it should be paid. And obviously that was never going to happen. They're not going to pay me a wage to be an apprentice. But that I got in just as that was changing. So uh, yeah, I got like full benefits. So that combined with, um, well, I'd had my last wage from British Gas that they ended up taking out of my bank account two week, two days after I'd, they paid me. Um, and they said that I'd taken holiday that I hadn't earned. So they took all my money back off me and that was supposed to be my safety net, like my kind of, you know, my last wage. I was going to make that last a few months, you know, on top of my benefits and expenses money. And they took it all off me and I thought that was it. I thought I was fucked. But then my uh, my stepmom helped me out and she, she gave me the money. So that was pretty make or break moment there, just financially. It's where a lot of apprentices apprenticeships fall down. It's just they can't afford to keep doing it. And I think I was pretty close to doing that really early on. But luckily, yeah, she helped out. Um, so then, yeah, I would I would turn up early, open the shop, um, do all the cleaning, sterilising, 
and then my boss that was tattooing, he, um, I would I would draw all of his appointments, any walk-ins that came in, I would draw those, um, set up his tattoo station, break it down after he was finished, clean up, um, and then just rinse, repeat, clean up at the end of the day, manage the front counter, um, just did everything in the shop apart from actually tattooing. Mm. Did literally everything else. I did piercing, I did laser removal. Um, yeah, six days a week for... That was about six months until he got sacked. Um, what was the story there? God, I don't know how much I can say, but... <laughs> <laughs> he, he, he he wasn't there. I mean, he's never going to listen to this. He's a smackhead now. But he, uh, yeah, he was doing all sorts of stuff like... Just stealing from the shop, drugs in the shop, you know, shagging customers when... The guy that owned the place was his father-in-law and he had, you know, misses at home with kids and he was cheating on his missus in the shop with customers and just an all-round scumbag, to be honest. He was really unhygienic, wasn't very good at tattooing, um, quite abusive to me, to customers, to <laughs> everyone around him, really, <laughs> just a nasty piece of work. Um but very likeable in a weird way, very charming. Um, so, yeah, he, um, he ended up getting sacked. And then the guy that owned the place, like his father-in-law, just put me in charge at that point and threw me in the deep end. So anything that came through the door, I did. But because I was on a set wage, which is quite uncommon in tattooing, um, he just wanted me to do as much work as possible because... You know, it made sense for him. He he got you know various other artists in that never lasted very long, because they would be getting paid per tattoo like as you would, and it was quite a shit percentage they were on as well. Um, so he wanted me to do most of the work because it made him the most money. Do you know what I mean? Hmm. Um, he was going to be paying me anyway, so I may as well take most of the work. But I generally really didn't do that. I tried to pass as much as I could onto the other artists and do less myself. But yeah, there was just such a large volume and variety of work in that place because it was in Morley and, you know, the prices were cheap. The work that they were used to getting from the guy before me wasn't very good. So when I kind of started, it wasn't that much different you know, in terms of quality mm. that I was doing compared to the stuff he was doing really. So it was, I mean, in hindsight, I would have much preferred somebody looking over my shoulder who knew what they were doing that could tell me what I was doing wrong. And I would have learned a lot quicker, but there's no substitute for that volume of and variety of work. And I learned a lot like that. But then, um, the owner of the place, I don't think he owns it anymore. So, I think I can say this, but he uh, he wanted me to engage in some less than legal financial activity. Um, and he didn't like spell it out as such, but he uh, it was quite clear what was going on. And at the time I was like, oh, okay, yeah, that's fine. And then behind the scenes, I was frantically looking for somewhere else to work so I could put the word out. And then some friends... And put in a good word for me at my last studio at Rude Studios and uh, started working there. So yeah, I'd been in my 
original shop for a couple of years, left there, went to work in Leeds City Centre at Rude Studios, and um, that's where it all kind of properly took off for me, really. Yeah. So, what was it about the tattooing that I think that stuck its kind of claws in you? Um, I mean, it'd always been the dream job since I was, you know, like 17, when I started getting tattooed at 18. Um, but I think I'd always just assumed it was a pipe dream. Like, I never really thought it was going to happen. Um, so then when I did, I don't know, like, after I'd been working all those office jobs and retail and all the typical things that everybody does, having a bit more freedom in tattooing in terms of, you know, I mean, it was a while until I was able to do this, but, you know, having some more control over your own schedule and um, creativity, every day is different, you know, you can, you're not having someone micromanaging you like you would in a call centre, all that kind of stuff, you know, targets and stats and things. So, yeah, I don't know, I think it's like relationships. I think when you've had a bad one, when a good one comes along, you you recognise it really quickly and it's kind of, yeah, it just grabs you. It's kind of quite easy to tell when you've got a good thing hmm. after you've had a few bad things, you know? Because, right. um, like, at the end of British Gas, I was having, like, panic attacks and, like, I have a really bad time of it. Like, it was it was really awful. The kind of, I was, you know, essentially bullied there. Um, so, yeah starting tattooing and doing something that I could really see myself doing for a long time was really refreshing and that I don't know I kind of always describe it as I felt like I'd retired at 24 like despite it being hard work like it was really hard work still is um it doesn't feel like work do you know what I mean like it's physically exhausting but it's not um depressing in that same way. Right. So, you know, you can turn up to work and put a shift in and at the end of the day feel absolutely shattered, but still be quite happy to turn up the next day. You know, I don't get that Monday morning blues. I don't wear Mondays, but you know what I mean? <laughs> you know, like on a Tuesday morning, I wake up and I'm happy to go to work. Do you know what I mean? I don't put it this way. I've never called in sick for tattooing without actually being sick. Right. I haven't like with other jobs I do it all the time. Game station I used to call in six to play World of Warcraft. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like so some days if I just couldn't be asked, if I couldn't face it, I thought, How long has it been since I last pulled a sickie? Yeah, I can get away with it. Just pull a sickie. Mm. Um never had to do that in tattooing. I've always been happy to turn up and you know, looked forward to it, whatever was going on. Well even if I had like not particularly exciting tattoos to do and I always enjoyed the people I work with and just get into tattoo it's you know it's fun so yeah I think it's that that feeling that refreshing feeling of not having to turn up at a nine to five you know yeah it's uh, it's very liberating so was tattooing I guess when you got to to rude kind of as you'd envisaged it to be in your head yeah pretty much um, you know, the people I was working with are fantastic, still are. You know, a lot of the people that were there when I started, the um the artists at that shop, I don't think any of them are still there now. Um but I'm still friends with 
most of them. Um, yeah, I mean, it was huge for me that that um, that break. Um, but yeah, it was you know it was fun, it was cool, it was exciting, it was you know it was busy. Um, the money was a lot better than I was on before, obviously being on the kind of crappy wage at the shop in Morley. Um, so for the first time, I'd started. Not not quite where I was, but similar money to the money I was making in the call centre. Um, whereas for a long time, I took like a huge, huge wage hit. You know, I left a 24 grand a year job to go and work a day extra for 200 quid a month, you know. <laughs> um, so getting back to having actual, you know, disposable income again was fantastic. Not that there was much of it, but still more than I had. Um, so yeah, I mean, it was just, I was having other people around me was a big thing because for the most part I was on my own at the shopping mall. So it wasn't a great motivator for getting better. Mm. Um, and obviously I wasn't getting paid per tattoo. So there wasn't a particularly big incentive to do more work than I absolutely needed to. Um, and even when there were other artists there, you know, there'd be the kind of random, people that the owner would bring on there was like a couple of Polish guys and um, one English guy and you know with the greatest of respect like none of them were pushing me in any sort of sense do you know what I mean in terms of comparing myself or learning things from them so yeah working at Rude when those other artists that actually gave a shit about what they were doing and about tattooing in general as an industry like it really was a big kick up the ass for me. I thought I've got, you know, I I don't want to look like the the guy that's here just chancing it or blagging it. You know, I want I need to make sure that I make this work and prove myself around all these people that are also taking it seriously. Like I, I wasn't the least experienced person there. I wasn't the most experienced person there. But at the same time, everyone there was more involved in it all. Do you mm. know what I mean than me? I was quite out of the loop. Um, so yeah, being around all them, it was, it was just really, yeah, just a big kick up the arse to kind of pull my finger out and take it seriously, do it properly. I learned a lot. Um, what was your kind of like biggest learning point while you were at the, at Rio? I don't think there was like any one big one. I mean, no, I mean, even talking to customers and things like difficult customers, I'd had plenty of them in, in Morley. I learned more about that there, having to be on my own in a shop and, you know, deal with all the kind of characters that turned up there was uh, a lot more nerve-wracking, so I was ready for all that. Um, I think, yeah, just having other people looking at what I was doing, you know, people, you know, still do it now and I do it. It's, you go and, you know, in between your own jobs, you wander around, see what everyone else is doing, have a little chat and look at what they're doing, ask questions, learn things from each other, bounce ideas around. So there wasn't any one big thing. It was just all lots of little things, just via osmosis, really, just being around it and, yeah, just talking to each other and bouncing ideas around. It was, that was just a, a big, big step up from where I'd been before. Mm. Um, and because I knew it was a big step up as well, there was that kind of motivator to make it work because at that point I was already with my wife, Rose, Um we weren't married yet, but we were together and 
I had a little one on the way quite shortly after I started at Rude. So me being the kind of sole learner whilst Rose went on maternity leave and that was uh, a massive motivator to make it work because there was no plan B. You know, I, I couldn't go back to working. I, you know, I still have nightmares where I'm back at British Gas in a call centre. Um, yeah, I, I just could, I couldn't do it. Now, if I, if I couldn't tattoo for any reason, I think the only thing I could do, I'd have to stay at home with the kids. There's, there's nothing else I could do. Um, so yeah, I, I just, there's never been a plan B. I had to make it work. Um, so how did you end up, because uh, you switched from Wood in town, didn't you, to, yeah. to Henley? So tell me that story. Yeah, so that was a weird one. Like, I'd only been at the the city centre shop for a month or two, and then Sam, the owner, asked me if I wanted to move to the Headingley shop because a position had opened up there. Um, but because I'd not been at the city centre shop very long, Rose was pregnant, and you know things were doing, you know, working out okay for me. I thought, well, I don't really want to rock the boat and risk it. You know, I'm quite happy here. I got on really well with the people I was working with, like you know Ash. Yeah. Um. You know, he's just such a great guy and we got on so well that I thought you know I don't really want to mess things up so I turned it down and then she got someone else in there a couple of people and um, she'd come and tell us you know how great they were doing how busy they were and then at the time I was going through a bit of a quiet period at the lead shop so I was like oh shit I should have taken that job <laughs> um, you know I need the money kind of thing and so I mentioned it to her. I said, look, I'm kicking myself for not taking that job. If anything else comes up in the future, let me know. And then didn't think much of it. You know, a year or two went by. Um, in fact, yeah, at that point, I'd been at City Centre Shop for three years, I think, by the time I left. So, yeah, about three years went by. And um, and then someone left, a guy called Juan, moved back to Spain. So uh, there was another position and Sam came to me again. She said, you know, you told me you wanted me to let you know so here I am there's that there's a job open at Headingley and I thought at the time I was quite you know I was relatively busy in Leeds and I was comfortable there <laughs> but I thought I can't say no twice especially after asking for it yeah so I thought well I've got to take it now haven't I so I did um and to be fair like it was it wasn't just that you know I did I was excited to try something new and work with new people, learn different things. And um, so, yeah, I moved there. Uh, it was great. Yeah, loved it. Worked. It was a very different environment, a lot more calm. You know, city centre, there's lots of walk-ins and all those, the, the area, the way the layout of the shop, like customers would come down and be immediately in the tattoo area and it was very hectic. It was great. It was a like good atmosphere, very good good buzz about the place but it was, it was very different in Headingley it was um, you know it was quiet and uh, not customer wise you know but it was steady like that but it was uh, just more relaxed and people would come downstairs to speak to the you know the front counter guy and you know sit down wait and then be called up for their appointment and things and there's that, that division between you know customers coming in and people being tattooed upstairs and it made for a much nicer atmosphere. Um, for me anyway, I like to not more relaxed. Um, and then the people I was working with just in terms of tattooing, like technical, like styles, 
was very different, you know, a lot more kind of realism and things. So when I started at Leeds, um, I, you know, I had to spend all this money on my own equipment and inks and things because before that I'd been using the ones that were in the shop where I apprenticed. So yeah, I moved out on my own, had to buy all my own stuff and I'd spent all this money on all these inks and all these colours and that. And everybody came in just wanting things in black or black and grey. And I was like, God, I just want to do some colour. Like, I've <laughs> bought all this stuff. I want to use it. Um, but it was just wasn't as popular. And I thought, well, if people are going to be asking me for all this black and grey stuff, like, I might as well try and get good at it if I'm going to be doing it. Because there was no one else there at the time that was really doing much black and grey. Like, Ash has always done Ash's own thing. He's, you know, came from the graffiti background and... Yeah, Ash it, seems to have like a really unique style. It really it? does, yeah. And like even his graffiti, you can tell it's his compared to other artists. Um, and his tattooing, especially the way he paints is the way that he tattoos. And you can spot one of his a mile off. And So yeah, he's never done anything sort of like realistic black and grey in that sense. And then there's a guy there, Justin, who um, ended up moving to Ultimate Skin and now he's moving to Sacred Electric soon. Um He's always done his very much his own thing, like quite heavy black work, kind of traditional, but not like, again, very much his own style. There's a guy there called Colin who did kind of, he, he was just quite old school, um, um, been around a while and did his own, did that kind of traditional, uh, just kind of, you know, typical tattoo shop stuff. Um... So yeah, there was no one that like specialised in it and I thought, well, this could be my niche. You know, if people are coming and asking for it, it's quite popular and there's no one here that's doing it. This could be a way for me to get a bit busier. So yeah, I thought, I thought I'm going to try and... Like, I'd done a fair bit of it in Morley, but only through trial and error. Like, I didn't really know what I was doing. And Yeah, so like, if you if you choose, I'm going to get good at black and grey and realism... Mm. What's the process? Did you do you Google like? <laughs> Kinda. I mean, you know, there, there's lots of like tattoo books and literature. Lots of like kind of most of it's you know traditional flash books and sketchbooks and things. But there are resources out there. You know, there's YouTube channels from people that are less than scrupulous about you know the information they share. Like it's generally a very tight knit community where you earn access to that knowledge. Mm. Um. You know, you pay your dues and you, you pick things up along the way. Whereas these days with the internet, people just want to make the quick money from YouTube or whatever. So they make these videos and I picked up a couple of bits from them. It, it wasn't even like the tutorial ones, like didn't those kind of people, like it's all bullshit. They don't really teach you anything. You you have to just do an apprenticeship to, to learn all that stuff really. Um... It was more from watching like really high end black and grey artists who would post just like videos of their work or time lapse things and just kind of watching, just picking up little pieces. Like once you know how to tattoo, like the basics, when you watch a video like that, you'll spot something that you, they do differently to mm. you. So I try things out. I try new machines, new needle configurations, new techniques inks like all that kind of stuff like ways of preparing my stencils all that like kind of thing. just trial and error really um and bit by bit you know just picked it up and sometimes you just got to take a bit of a leap like if someone comes in asking for something that might be a little bit beyond what you think you can do 
Um, or even if you like, you know, if you feel like it's something you think you could do or you want to do, like offer it to friends or customers at a reduced rate and things. So this is something I'd like to add to my portfolio. You know, if anybody wants it, I can do it cheaper or, you know, for free or whatever. Um, so did a bit of that. And yeah, just just kind of picked it up inch by inch, really. And and then when I moved to Headingley, that was, uh, you know, working with Lee and Pinyu, who specialised in uh, realism and black and grey stuff. Like I learned loads just from just from watching. Like I would ask questions and they would answer them like quite openly. They were really good at that very forthcoming with knowledge and really generous in that sense. But um but yeah, just uh just by watching, just standing over their shoulders and asking like what are you using there? How are you doing that? And and yeah, even without asking questions, just by watching you could learn things. So yeah, just wherever I could find information, I'm the same now, like I'll just soak it up like a sponge. Uh, if it's books or videos or you know, even just listening to people talk, you know, you you pick it up wherever you can and it all, every little bit, you know, you might spend a year working with somebody and only learn one little thing, but that little thing could be the the catalyst that opens up a whole new aspect of your tattooing, you know. So, yeah, there was, there's a few of those kind of moments from working with Lee and Pinyu that I, that opened up a lot for me and then practiced them on friends and customers and things and yeah, kind of got where I am now. So did you kind of see a, I guess looking back through the tattoos you do, can you kind mm. of mark different points where you're like, oh, I can see I got yeah better at this point? And- yeah, there's um, it's a weird one. I kind of, I feel like every three months I don't know I don't, it might not be accurate but that's kind of how it feels in my head it, it feels like there's a little step up where I kind of feel like I can do something now that I couldn't do a few months ago and I'll look back at work I've done and think I could do that better now and it yeah it, it feels like around every three months mm. for me I don't know why that is yeah so it's not like a tangible bit of like knowledge you could pull it no nah, it's, it's, it's not like it. earning grades at an instrument or yeah. a martial art or something do you know what I mean it's not like those kind of break points it's, it's very it's all subjective and you know it's all relative to what else you're doing at the time but yeah I don't know it's, it's a really weird one you just you've got to keep pushing yourself because as much as you could be working around supportive people, um, for the most part, people aren't going to push you that hard. Because A, you know, you're a competitor, really. And you're all competing for work in the same city. Mm. So, you know, if you're not doing as well, then it's better for them, isn't it? But also, they've got their own shit going on. Like, they're all, everybody else is thinking about what they're doing and trying to improve themselves like too much to worry about you um and that's not to say people aren't supportive because everybody I've worked with at Rude and where I am now at Snake and Tiger like everybody's so helpful and like I say forthcoming with knowledge but ultimately you've got to look after yourself like you've got to you know you push yourself because other people for the most part aren't going to push you 
Um, was that something you kind of learnt at your first shop quite quite well? Well, just out of necessity there because yeah. they they had no real interest in teaching me much anyway. They, you know, the guy that originally was tattooing didn't have much to teach. To be honest, he kind of chanced it himself. Um, I, it was very clear to me that quite early on that I was just cheap labour. I got my foot in the door quite easily because they just wanted someone who wasn't a moron who could put the work in and take care of the shop, do all the drawing for the guy that couldn't do it himself. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I had to. At that point, once I realised I didn't have somebody looking over my shoulder who was going to guide me, I kind of, well, I've got to guide myself. Really. It, was, it was almost like I was self-taught in a tattoo shop with the resources that came with the shop, but without the tutelage, you know, especially once he'd been sacked. <laughs> I was, I was literally on my own, you know, so. So you, you just mentioned that you're now at uh, Snake and Tiger. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me how that came about. Um, maybe a little bit about what Snake so and Tiger is like. Gaz, who's one of the owners of Snake and Tiger, there's two owners, Gaz and Chris. Gaz, I met through Allison back in the day when I was living in Hyde Park because um, he worked at a place called Physical Poetry at the time on Hyde Park Corner and he tattooed my knuckles um, he was friends with Allison whenever she um, like she moved away and came back to do guest spots there so if I got tattooed by Allison a couple of times it was at that shop so I met him through her he was always really nice to me and then um didn't really keep in touch as such, but, you know, we were like friends on Facebook and Instagram and things like that. And I think he must have been keeping an eye on what I was doing because it was a few months ago I got um, a message on Instagram from him asking if he could call me. So he called me and um, said that they needed somebody and they wanted it to be me. Um, the thing is that Snake and Tiger, it's, we've all got that similar kind of attitude towards tattooing where we want to be really good all-rounders we don't want to kind of just specialize or like not specialize but only do one thing Hmm. um and i had i've had offers over the years from various other places and a lot of them kind of wanted me to just do one thing just wanted me to be the black and gray guy or if it was a shop with a few black and gray guys wanted me to be the traditional guy or whatever and I don't want to do that. Like I've always just wanted, I like the variety. It's what keeps it interesting for me. I wouldn't ever just want to turn up to work and do one kind of tattoo day in, day out. Um, there's plenty of people that do and, you know, absolutely respect to them. They they make that work and that's they're, they're happy doing that. But for me, I, I really enjoy doing lots of different things. I feel like things I learn from one discipline of tattooing carry over to others and make me a better all-round tattooer in general. Um... So that's the same kind of ethos that they've got at Snake and Tiger. And uh, I think they could see that from the variety of work on my portfolio, like on it online. And um, what really kind of interested me was that it kind of blew a bit of smoke up my ass. And <laughs> it was, it wasn't just that they wanted someone, like they wanted me. And that that was a kind of ego boost and... You know, made me feel quite nice about myself. But um, I turned it down originally because I was happy at Rude. Didn't want to rock the boat. 
you know, it was very difficult. Like I, the first time I'd ever had a decision or an offer like that where I'd not just instantly politely declined. You know, I, I went to go and meet with them just out of courtesy more than anything else. But when I got there, we ended up talking for like two hours and I got on really well with them. So when I went in there, I think I was like 80, 90% sure that I was going to say no. But I thought I'd just go and say hello just to be polite. And then when I left, I was just fully 50-50. I didn't have a clue. I've never been in that position before. Mm. I've always, well, if, yeah. if I've been ever given a decision like that in the past, I've always kind of thought, well, I know what I want to do, but I'm too scared to pull the trigger on it. Or, you know, or just been sure of what I should do kind of thing. I've never really been completely stumped about a decision like that, especially career-wise. So, um, yeah, I had to take a week or two to think about it and weigh up the pros and cons. And I think it's like, you know, when you've got a decision to make and you kind of flip a coin and then it lands on one result and you're unhappy with that result, that kind of tells you what you wanted yeah. to happen. And it was kind of like that where I said no and then I went back to work at Rude and I was just like, ah, should I said yes. <laughs> but it took kind of making a decision one way or the other to kind of realise what I really wanted to do. So, um, similar to maybe when you uh, had turned down working at the Henley studio. and Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It was that, that kind of thing where, yeah, I had to make a decision one way or the other to kind of really realize whether it was the right one. So, um, I went back to them and asked, Hey, you still got that job, <laughs> but they're like, they'd kind of made it clear that, you know, as I say, they weren't just, it wasn't like an open vacancy where they were taking applicants or anything. It was they wanted me specifically. Mm. So it was what, still open. Apart from like the quality of your work, do you, mm. why do you think that was? And like, you well, like I say, I think it was, the, it was, it was the variety. And also, yeah, I mean, we're all, everyone who works there, there's four of us artists and an, an apprentice now as well. We're all just riddled with anxiety and do you know what I mean? Um, kind of homebodies, none of us, any sort of rock star egos or anything like that. And I think, yeah, from because I knew Gaz already, I think he knew that about me. Um, you know, they could they knew that I was a family man, wasn't out there partying and stuff. And and then yeah, just from the variety of the work I do, that fit in really well with their whole ethic. And I think that's where it came from. And then after meeting with me and talking to me, I think we just clicked. What did uh, you talk about in that initial? I mean, it's just like a business meeting. And you right. talk about you know like logistics and ins and outs and oh, right. um all that kind of stuff but but yeah it was uh but yeah it was it's just we we were kind of all on the same page mm. um and that's what made it so difficult because you know I was really happy at Rude and I'm still friends with everybody there you know I play football with Stephen Pinu every week and going to Lee's wedding soon like you know we're all good mates um so it wasn't an out any sort of like fallout. It wasn't because you know I'd fallen out with them, which is often the case at tattoo shops. People only leave a lot of the time just because they have to. Mm. It wasn't that at all. It was you know the offer came along and again it's working with different people. You learn different things. Um, I've learned a lot already, just being at Snake and Tiger, and it's just a different way of working. I think it only makes you a better tattooer in general just by 
learning different things, doing things in different ways, figuring out what works best for you. And um, yeah, different clientele, all that kind of stuff, really. Yeah. Not that um, Rude isn't like a very prestigi- mm. prestigious shop, like the head anyone because it is, mm. but it's, it seems like Snake and Tiger is really like top tier. Like, yeah, they've, they've got a really good reputation. Um, even just like where the shop is in the Thornton's Arcade feels yeah. high quality, doesn't it? That's what I mean. I think everywhere in the arcade, it kind of has that boutique kind of feel to it. Yeah. You know, there's a couple of chain places like Bagel Nash and, and whatever, but for the most part, they're all kind of independent, you know, on that kind of end of the spectrum businesses. And it really fits there. Um, and yeah, like it's, you know, the thing is with Rude, it's kind of almost... Um, they like they they have a big focus on piercing and stuff as well. Mm. Whereas Snake and Tiger's purely tattoo. There's no other sort of body modification, no piercing, no laser removal. Like it's just tattooing. Um, you know, there's there's flash all over the walls that's been painted by you know the people that work there. There's other paintings and like you know original paintings and you know historical. You know, there's like. Flash from, you know, the, the 30s, you know, the original hand-painted stuff that Chris has bought, and it's like a museum kind of thing, and it's, you know, they, they really give a shit. There's like a library of reference that's available to me and all that kind of stuff, and it feels more, I don't know, like uh, like everybody is working together to make the shop a success rather than just individuals in a venue. Do you know what I mean? That's interesting. Um, and yeah, like you know, we're all they're all they're very supportive of me because there's own there's Chris and Gaz who both own the place. There's Colette, who's Chris's partner, and me. And it's only me and Colette. You know, the fifty percent of the artists there don't own the place. <laughs> um, so Chris and Gaz are already so busy because they've been around a lot longer than me. You know, they've got like, kind of been tattooing best part of fifteen years each. So they've got their client base. So work that comes in goes to me and Colette and they encourage it and, you know, they. it's not like you're competing with your boss, you know, you're kind of fighting for scraps or whatever. They they push me to take things on and even things that might be outside my comfort zone, things that I've not really done a lot of before and they, like, encourage me to do it and help me with it. So if it's a design in a style that I'm not particularly familiar with. Like I've been doing a lot more kind of Polynesian, like Maori stuff lately, okay. which isn't something I've done a lot of before, but they, you know, they, they've got really good reference books for it. Well, so I can learn more about it, where it comes from, what it all means. And, um, you know, they help me a lot with that. So it's kind of like adding another string to my bow. Um, yeah, it's great. It's really nice. Have you ever thought about kind of like that journey you've been on, like going from what, what sounds to me the way you describe it quite a, a bad place to work that's mm. how shop that you started the apprenticeship mm. from kind of building it up a level to the well quite a big jump I guess to the Leeds room. all the time yeah like I look back and you know because I've a lot of my early tattoos were done on friends that were already quite heavily tattooed so I didn't mind offering up the skin for some shit stuff but they're people I'm still friends with and I see those tattoos like I did one a couple of days ago on my friend John who's got some of my very first tattoos from back in the day. And, and I look at it and I'm just 
so embarrassed <laughs> at the state of, you know, what my early... T- I mean, everybody's the same. They're like, the vast majority of tattoos, their early tattoos are terrible. And you look back and you think, bloody hell. And yeah, but I'm literally doing work on John's leg where John's got my earliest and my most recent tattoos as of that day um, on the same leg, like next to each other. Mm. So it doesn't get much more literal than that. Do you know what I mean? Seeing the jump from there to now. Um, Do you think you'll see that jump again in like another 10 years? I hope so. Yeah, I talked about this the other day and it's a weird one because there's this kind of like long running kind of trope in tattooing where if you're the wife of a tattoo artist, it's difficult to get tattooed. <laughs> um, you know, Rose asks me all the time, you know, I want you to tattoo me, I want this, I want that. I'm like, yeah, 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 we'll do it, we'll do it. <laughs> it's been years since I've tattooed Rose. Um, so, but when we, I was talking about that with, with Chris the other day, but he was saying how funny it is that that's the case, you know, that you, you don't want to tattoo the people around you because you have to see it every day. And then, like, Rose has got some tattoos I did back in Morley. Um, and she, now she's got one where, like, I covered up one of her older tattoos. And looking back at it now, I'm ashamed of the cover-up. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, it's, like, I didn't do the original, but, you know, at the time I thought the cover-up was better than what was underneath it. And now I'm like... I want to cover up that cover up. <laughs> <laughs> so that's this that's one of the reasons that like it's it's I'm so reluctant to tattoo her specifically is because I feel like I'm just gonna keep growing and you know, another seven years down the line, it's hopefully there'll be just as big a jump and I don't wanna be looking back at those tattoos I did, you know, in two thousand eighteen, thinking, Oh Jesus, look at the state of that. It's like it was like I felt the same way about tattooing you. Like with your with your sleeve that we started, like I was terrified. I only I only get like that tattooing family or other tattoo artists. Mm. Um, other tattoo artists just because they know what you're doing. <laughs> yeah, if you like <laughs> if you like if you if you fuck up something on a customer, you can usually hide it very easily. Um, if you know what you're doing, and they've been on the wiser. With a tattoo artist, they'll be watching you and they'll see you fuck up and they'll see you hide it. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And, and it's, it's it's all, you know, you can't really get away with it. Um, but with uh, but with family as well, it's like you've got to see that all the time. And that's, I think, your sleeve in particular that we've been doing, like I've pulled out all the stops and giving you all the bells and whistles. Do you know what I mean? Trying, and I think the stuff on your arm, I, I think, is some of my strongest work and when people come to me and ask for examples of like black and grey things a lot, a lot of the things I'll show them will be bits we've done on you hmm. um, but that's yeah I mean I guess you could say I should be doing that for everybody really but it doesn't always work out that way you know Yeah, you don't always get the time you'd like um, because people won't pay for it so you've kind of got to give people the work they expect and the time and the, the budget they've got how do you feel about that kind of like Mine is all like done off of photos and stuff like mm-hmm. that, isn't it? So, well, for the for majority of it. Yeah. Um, you saying? I remember when we were speaking last. You saying it's it's very technical to do that, mm-hmm. but it doesn't obviously like flex any creative kind of type. Muscles, yeah, it's so. it's different. Yeah, 
it's generally the case with a lot of realism I find is that because you are taking stuff from realistic source material it's taken from photos or statues or paintings um, whereas you know you're doing other styles you are drawing it from scratch or you know redrawing old designs and you know making them fresh again and putting your own take on it um so yeah it's it's different and that's that I think that's that's the part of it I I enjoy about the variety is that I like to flex the kind of more creative muscles and do things off the top of my head but then also with the more real, realism stuff I like the technical aspect of it I like you know figuring out how to create an effect in the in the skin and that you know they carry over from one to the other you know they there's parts of your sleeve that are just drawn on even the composition of it and things like that that's kind of more where the creative aspect comes into it how different things are going to tie together how it's all going to flow and yeah i mean from one bit joins to the next and how it looks as a whole but the individual elements are taken from photographs so it's yeah it's uh, it's different yeah for instance like i only realized it after you finished the elephant that mm. even way back when we're getting like this Wolf done, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know this. There's like this little, uh, you know, stream that kind of goes yep. up, and I, I didn't even realize that when it was kind of, you know, that's what I mean. Yeah, it's mid- all, middle. it's all kind of leaving yourself those options, because when we did that wolf, we didn't know we were going to be doing that snake. Mm, yeah. So it's leaving yourself those little Lego connector, yeah, sections where you know you can join something on later on. Oh, so if you kind of just... Like in a, in a modular way. Yeah, and so if you freestyled like this kind of, probably not good podcasting. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know... Tin is pointing to his wrist. <laughs> <laughs> the coral stuff around the turtle that you yeah. kind of did off the cuff was, it's like some of my favourite bits. Yeah, that's what I mean. Like you need to, you need to be able to draw, you know, you need to be able to know how things are supposed to go and, um, you know, there's elements of that that you know, I'll be looking quite intently at the reference, and there's elements where I'll I won't look at the reference at all, and I'll do it off the top of my head. In fact, a lot of black and grey stuff, like I think it's fifty fifty, where I'll have like the reference picture next to me to look at, or sometimes you know fifty percent of the time I won't. I'd rather just have the stencil, but then shade it how I think it should be shaded, rather than how it is in the photo. All right. Um. So it depends what it is and how comfortable I am with the source material and, and yeah there's there's lots of different nuances between the two styles and different yeah muscles that it flexes so this might seem like a bit of a strange question but for you how do you define or, or what is like art <sighs> I don't even know if I'm qualified to answer that to be honest I think there's I've heard some people describe it in various ways and I think the only one that ever stuck with me was it's something that's designed to provoke a reaction and I think that that kind of stuck with me so whether it is like shocking that helped me understand more kind of modern art that I've not really gelled with but then I think once I got my head around that aspect of it it's kind of like you know you see people doing those big painting of just like a blue square and it'll end up in the Tate Modern. Right. And people will look at it and be like, well, I could have done that. So it's shit. But the difference is, you didn't. 
Yeah. Do you know what I mean? You could have done that, but you didn't. That guy did. So that's why it's here. Um, and the fact that it does elicit that reaction of, oh, well, that, that shouldn't be here. That's nothing like that itself is a reaction that could be the purpose of that piece. Do you know what I mean? It's to make you frustrated. That's, he says that, you know, frustration isn't as valid of a reaction as, you know, being impressed by yeah. a super realistic portrait of somebody, you know. Um, and I think, yeah, I think that's the thing that's always kind of stuck with me in terms of what art is. I think effort isn't as relevant. Something could be very easy to make or something could be very difficult to make. It doesn't mean that the end product is going to be any better. Something could be very complex or it could be very simple. They're both art. And I think, yeah, the only thing that ever really boils down to is did it provoke a reaction? Because if it didn't, then that's probably not, you know, did it make you feel anything? Then no, then it might as well just be wallpaper. Yeah. Um, I don't know how that relates to tattooing. That was my question. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think it does relate to tattooing. I mean, this is where I kind of feel out of my depth. I feel like maybe it is. You know, there's this whole kind of thing about ignorant style tattooing where you get these kind of hipster types in New York and London or whatever that do tattoos that would objectively look bad, like right. technically done badly, like the, the lines are uneven and sketchy and look like they were made in someone's kitchen. But they'll be... draw, And then the drawings will be quite crude and like it was some kind of like sketchy prison tattoo or whatever. But the person doing it will be charging like 500 quid for a little thing as big as your thumb. And they'll be, you know, the next big thing on Instagram. Mm. Because they're doing it on purpose, supposedly. So it's a real big divide. Um, Tattoos have kind of always had some kind of counterculture type thing. Yeah, well, that's what I mean. Exactly. And I think at first when I saw all these ignorant style tattoos kind of thing, I was like, what the fuck is this? Like, it feels like a slap in the face. Because it's, it's like, you know, some people who like me and, you know, the vast majority of the rest of the tattoo industry that work really, really hard to get better at what they're doing and to to um, make it technically, you know, to be technically proficient at what they're doing and make a, put a clean line and saturate colour solidly and all that kind of stuff to make sure it looks good and it lasts a long time. And then these people come in and just do some bullshit and charge a fortune for it and get famous. And it's like, what are you doing? But then... I guess if you do take a step back and look at it in that wider context of art, well, that's the reaction it's getting, isn't it? That's the reaction it's got from me. And like you say, it's a counterculture where now tattooing is so mainstream that it's on footballers and it's on, you know, celebrities. and One in every three people. Exactly. And you, look, you can't walk down the street without seeing a tattoo and, you know, there's tattoo shops in every city and every town. And it's... Um, maybe the counterculture now is to either have no tattoos or have shit ones on purpose. Mm. Do you know what I mean? When you've got these people with their hands and necks covered in tattoos, which used to be a big thing, and now they've got these like beautiful, super realistic works of art. Literally, you know, you could have reproductions of Venus de Milo on your on your neck or whatever. <laughs> 
some Van Gogh painting on your hand or whatever. Mm. You know what I mean? Like literal like works of art on your hands and neck, which would normally be space reserved for criminals. Um, what is the counterculture when that's the case? Do you know what I mean? When people have these like full sleeves of really intricate, detailed, realistic things. Um, maybe the only way to kind of push back is to get something really shitty on purpose. Mm. <laughs> so, <laughs> but that, that's where I kind of get lost and that's where I yeah. don't really, uh, I don't really feel qualified to to answer. <laughs> mm. It kind of makes me think about, what. well, why do you think people get tattoos in the first place? Yeah, there's so many different reasons. I think originally it was, like you say, that kind of, it was naughty. And like when I started getting tattooed, it was definitely less common. I was kind of around that hardcore punk scene and there's a lot of people like me um, that were getting you know, like straight edge tattoos and like my first ever tattoo was a straight edge one. And um, it was, yeah, that, you know, I was living in Huddersfield and I had a sleeve and people would literally grab my arm. And like, when I was at work at game station, people would grab my arm and pull me across the counter to look at it. Like literally, there was, you know, women would not like, not just saying women, but like, it happened two or three times and they were women. So, <laughs> and they like grabbed my arm, yanked me across the counter, and be like, oh my God, that is beautiful. What is that? Do you know what I mean? Um, and, you know, I would get stopped in the street. And can you imagine stopping someone in the street now and being like, oh my God, a sleeve? Like they're everywhere. You wouldn't do that. But back then, I don't mean Huddersfield's, you know, bit more backwards than the rest of the world but still it's you know still a lot more common now than it was and um I'm not saying I was like the first guy with a sleeve or anything but it definitely was less common um and then you know I got my knuckles tattooed and that wasn't like I was really like anxious about that I was asked my boss at the time at British Gas and I asked him like four times over the space of like a month just to be absolutely sure it was okay or at the end, it was like, for fuck's sake, Bob, just go and get your hands tattooed. I don't care. Um, but it was still, like, really naughty. Like, it was very uncommon at the time. Um, and I liked that. That was kind of the point. Like, now you get people coming and asking for their first tattoo, like, on their neck or their face or whatever. And, it, you know, I wouldn't do it. But still, it's it's much more common, you know, all these kind of like SoundCloud rapper type people who are just covered in like little shit tattoos all over their hands and necks and faces and stuff. Mm. Um, it's kind of taken away that kind of impact, I think. But it depends who you ask. You could ask, you know, people in their 60s how they feel about someone with a face tattoo and they'll have a very different reaction to someone in their 20s. Um, but I think as, you know, time goes on, it's going to get more and more accepted and then I kind of feel like the bubble is going to burst and it's going to kind of go maybe back underground again when the next generation of kids comes up and sees their parents covered in tattoos and thinks it's not cool anymore. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. But it's always been around, you know, fashion and trends come and go. Um, and tattooing's thousands of years old, so... It's always going to be there. I think it's more important that you make sure that you can survive when times get rough. Um, and, you know, by making yourself marketable in terms of what you can do 
And I think that's one of that's the original reason why I always wanted to make sure I was I could do a bit of everything was because I didn't want to just do one thing and have that one thing go out of fashion and not be able to support my family. I wanted to make sure I could do whatever came in the door and do it well. Um, and if the bubble does burst, whatever is left over, like whatever people want at the time, I want to make sure I can do it. Yeah. So. If they say there's always a market for quality, isn't there? Yeah, that's what I mean. So yeah, it's, you see trends, like even trends in, in tattooing, things come and go. And you see things coming up and you, you can tell it a mile off when it's not going to stick around. Um. So yeah. Can you give an example of that, like for anything at the moment? Or? Um. I mean, it's, it's hard to say, I don't want to say too much about what I think is going to go out of fashion now because I don't want to talk myself out of work. <laughs> um, but, you know, there's a lot of these kind of... So, you know, like, like mandala kind of patterns. I like yeah. I like them. I like doing mandalas. I like drawing them. But it, there's a lot of these ones where people are getting them, like, on the sternum with all these kind of, like, dangly chandelier bits underneath. So they're kind of like little <coughs> dotty, like ropes and strings that kind of dangle down people call them titty chandeliers because they're just like, like yeah basically <laughs> it's, it's it's like um you know you could have like a really nice pattern on the sternum and then you'll have all this dangly dotty looks like, like a chandelier but simpler dangling off of it and generally when people ask me for that stuff i'll you know i'll kind of talk them out of the dangly bits because they're generally uh, you know, the mandala and that kind of more pattern stuff has been around a lot longer. And that's more likely to still look decent in the long term. But all this extra dangly bits, it's... Yeah, that's one thing. Mm. Um, things that are really popular at the minute, like pocket watches, lion faces. Um, it's always like a really dour-looking lion, like from the front. <laughs> yeah. Just like a straight-on view of a black and grey lion with its mouth closed. And for a tattoo artist, it's so boring to do. Because the interesting bits of a lion are like the eyes and then like nose and mouth. Everything else is just hair. Yeah. It's just fur, which is a ball like to tattoo in the first place. It's difficult to do. And when the majority of the tattoo is just fur, apart from a couple of eyes and, you know, a nose, like get it. And it's straight on as well. So it's symmetrical. So really you only have to like, you're doing half a lion twice. So you do get like a nice. If it was on like a three quarters angle with the mouth open roaring or something, you can get all the detail in the teeth and the mouth and the kind of wet look on the you know the mouth and the tongue and that's that would be cool. But people always want it just straight on mouth closed, sad looking lion with a crown on and a rose. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's one I'm never particularly excited to do. Um, yeah, pocket watches really common, boring. It's always. Oh, I've had a kid and this is the one he was born. So get something else, get something more personal yeah. for you and your kid, do you know what I mean? Don't just get the same pocket watch everyone else has got. It's a weird kind of relationship you have, I guess, with these people. Because I guess in a lot of cases, you'll be spending quite a few hours with them. Yeah. Um. You know, even in the build-up to actually tattooing them, go, going through it, stuff mm-hmm. with them. What is that like? What have you learned from meeting all these people? And um, You see a lot of patterns. You see a lot of people... You kind of know what they're going to say before they say it. You get asked the same questions a lot. It's 
always the same questions, no matter whereabouts in the world you are, no matter what style of tattoo you do, people ask the same questions. It's, how did you get into it? Have you always been artistic? Did you go to college to do this? What's the weirdest tattoo you've ever done? Um, what else is it? And is this when they're trying to find out about you to see if they're Yeah, it's like just general kind of small talk when you're tattooing Oh, people. when you're tattooing. Where's the most painful place? What's the biggest tattoo you've ever done? Um, yeah, just stuff like that, really. It's always the same. And you get bored of answering the same questions over and over and over again. But, like, you don't want to be a dickhead. You have to make it sound interesting. Like, oh, wow, well, I guess, uh, you know. You've already got your but answer yeah, You've got the pre-canned <laughs> yeah. answers, do you know what I mean? And So... Yeah, it's, <laughs> you, you, you spot those patterns a lot. Um, but other than that, you know, it's just, I like talking to people. It's nice, it makes the day go faster. Meet some interesting people with interesting jobs and, you know, life experiences and things. It's cool. It's like you doing your podcast, you know what I mean? You get to talk to people and learn things and, yeah, I like that aspect of it. Any particular interesting people I mean you don't need to give like names or anything but oh god yeah I mean I've met um, I've tattooed a uh, hitman um, you know drug dealers what was it like talking to the hitman were you nervous so? <laughs> I only found out it was a hitman after I tattooed him yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah did you know, get a barcode on the back of his he was a bold guy black suit red tie um no, I mean, there wasn't much to tell about that one, to be honest. Um, there's a guy who was really interesting who was in um, the Foreign Legion and, like, their version of the Paras and now does private security in Afghanistan. He's basically that real-life action man. And now he's, he had some crazy stories. Um, there's a commercial diver, like a master diver from South Africa who was over here spending his time on shore so he didn't have to pay tax. Um, he was really interesting. Lots of kind of cool stories about diving and things. That was good. Um, I met a woman who uh, was abducted and sold into a sex trafficking ring. Jeez, for like seven years. People find these share stories quite easy with you, and yeah, generally it's it's a weird one. It's like um, you know that typical kind of movie trope of the bartender cleaning a glass, mm. and the guy at the bar opens his heart, kind of thing. It's it's like that, like that kind of barbershop style I think people get nervous when they're getting tattooed and they like to talk and I like to talk anyway do you know what I mean like I'll tell people just so much as they tell me <laughs> so right. it's you know it's good to build that trust and that relationship and you know especially when people are nervous it's good to put them at ease and you know make them feel comfortable around you and it's good to talk in general and it's a way to pass the time because you know you sat there for hours on and it's good to you know have something to talk about yeah but yeah generally it's people open up quite a lot it's nice i like it i wanted to switch from tattooing for uh, mm-hmm. a little bit and i wanted to talk to you about for me you've always been my big brother mm-hmm. but to someone else now your dad or yeah your, your husband yeah what was it what's it like becoming a dad and how did that change terrifying <laughs> yeah so i remember when i found out rose was pregnant and i'd been out and um you know my friend danny yeah and it was his birthday and we went to his house and got pissed and I ended up staying over at, um, you know, Andy, Andy's house. Yeah, yeah. And um, 
super hungover. And I was like getting the train back to Solterre and Rose rang me and she was like, oh, can you pick up some toilet roll? And I said, yeah, all right then. See you soon. And then um, got home, literally thought nothing of it. And I was just kind of walked, but Rose was like, Bob, like sounding quite upset. And I thought she'd found a spider or something. So like I'd like run upstairs and she sat on the toilet holding a pregnancy test. <laughs> and I was just... No, <laughs> just a, lots of swearing, I think, and um, like I was excited, but just kind of more like incredulous. Like it kept me. Yeah. You know, I spoke to her like ten minutes before, and she told me to pick up some toilet roll. It wasn't like it wasn't expected. It wasn't like this kind of preamble, like oh my period's late or anything yeah. like that. It was just completely out of the blue. Um, and Rose, you know, she'd been told a while before that they didn't think she could have kids. Um, so that was a shock. <laughs> um, so yeah, super exciting. And then basically from that day on, it's just constant worry. And I think it's going to be constant worry until I die. So <laughs> like you worry about the pregnancy, you worry about Ro, you know, your wife and worry that, you know, she's healthy, that the baby's healthy and then the baby comes out and it's like, right, okay. And please make sure the baby keeps breathing. So for the first point, you know, for the first 24, 48 hours, <laughs> mm. you just stare at them and make sure the chest keeps moving up and down. <laughs> it's literally like sat staring <laughs> at them as they sleep to make sure they continue to breathe. Um, which is kind of ironic given Thea's hospital trips with her asthma, where she literally <laughs> doesn't breathe in her sleep apnea, where she stops breathing in her sleep. Um, but yeah, it's uh, just just constant fear. That's mm. all it is. <laughs> it's just terrifying the whole time. Is there things that you didn't expect that have come about? Um, I mean, load the whole thing is just a constant journey of surprise and discovery and new limits to stress and exhaustion and joy and love. And it's just every single emotion you can think of gets pushed to a new boundary in one way or another. Um, I've never been as angry or frustrated as I have at, you know, a three-year-old who's thrown a tantrum about brushing her teeth. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, you know, I've never been as scared as, you know, seeing her in hospital and being in ambulance rides with her, seeing her throwing up blood in a bucket I've never been as happy and excited as you know seeing her be born watching her taking her first steps hearing her talk and you know you know recent stuff like seeing her start school and all that kind of stuff like it's every emotion you can think of just ramped up to 11 mm. it's crazy it's, it's a really hard concept for me to grasp I guess because mm. for me in my life, I'm. I just need to look after me. I'm yeah, number one. I just that's the to... thing. Like it's, it's one of those things where you feel really self conscious of it, of that all that that of being cliche, and kind of saying that typical thing as like, oh, you'll never understand because you're not a parent, mm. and if you feel like such a dickhead saying it because, you know, you don't know what other people understand. You can't assume what other people's experiences are. You can't assume how other people are feeling. But at the same time, I feel like there are things that are intrinsically linked with being a parent that you just won't 
get your head round until it happens to you. Um, having said that, it's not a great leap from looking after you guys when you were small, you know. There's that, because of that age gap with, like, me and you. Um, and Semfra, like, when you guys were small and, you know, I, w- they were, I remember when you had your appendix out. And up until having my own children, that was the most scared I've ever been. Was seeing you in hospital, like with all the tubes in you and stuff. Um, and then it wasn't until having yeah my own kids and having similar experiences with them that it kind of trumped what happened with you. Um, but it's this kind of comes from the same place, just a little more intense. Yeah, so, I mean, it's the same kind of feeling. Um, yeah, it's, it's it's really weird. It's like it just changes everything. Like your whole perspective and kind of sense of purpose in life just gets flipped on its axis and everything from then on is now you are secondary to your what your kid needs do you know what I mean you're, yeah. you're not the most important thing in the room anymore I think it's, it's, it's weird as well because I get to see you're obviously with them every day so yeah. I'm not sure if you notice it as much but mm. I only see them every few months or something in like snapshots yeah yeah so like last time I was here Cleo would know like a few words and, yeah and now she's like Say loads of words, yeah, and, yeah. And you know, Thea started school now. She got like, mm. and she's you can see like personalities develop, and, yeah, yeah, and that kind of thing. And it's just strange from like them knowing like literally nothing to knowing. Yeah. Well, that's things. the thing. Like, it's in in a sense, you're right. Like you know, we see it every day, so it's a lot more gradual. But then also, we'll sit and just one of the things we'll do is like we'll sit in bed and look at photos and videos on our phones of them like when they were younger and just kind of reminisce a little bit from like this time last year or two years ago whatever and I think that does help kind of put it in perspective a bit and you do still get that sense of progression and seeing where they were to where they are now and if anything that makes it kind of like a bit scarier or sadder because you see how fast they are growing and yeah. And again, it's a really like cliche, typical thing that might not make great podcast material, but it's like, you know, that typical parent thing of like, oh, blinking, you'll miss it. Oh, they grew up so fast. But it's true. Like you, you see, you, you see them every day and Cleo and Thea, they'll, they'll say things or do things that they couldn't do this time last week. And it's, it's that quick. And I think that helped a lot with, I used to get a lot angrier and frustrate, more frustrated with them. Um, when, you know, Theo would be like, I want a banana. So you give her a banana. I don't want a banana. Like, all right, I'll take it away. Where are you taking my banana? Like, we'll have it back then. It's like, don't give me that. I don't want it. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Those kind of, they don't know what they want kind of frustrating. Like, where you just like, what do you want? Those kind of things bother me less now when I learned about how their brains are developing. So it's all like, you know, all the kind of new neural connections that are being formed, you know, hundreds of thousands of times every second. There's all these new connections that are firing and any one of them can change their mood like in an instant. So not only are they, is their mood changing, like they they don't know what they want and it's, it's just as frustrating for them as it is for you. And once you realise it's not their fault and that it's just biology, it's just them literally growing in front of you, their brains forming as they speak that informs what they say and feel and do, then 
once I realised that, it made it a lot easier for me to process and now I get less angry at them because I know it's not their fault. They're just learning in front of me. And that that's pretty cool to see sometimes and I try and cling on to that when they're stressing me out and just being toddlers, which is what they do. Yeah. What do you hope Theo and Cleo have... Um, what do they, what do you hope they have growing up that you may have missed out on or um both the parents around I guess probably the big one mm. um I don't know I think everyone everyone's childhood is so different and I feel like it's not fair to pin your expectations on them and the things that you want for them I think ultimately as long as they're happy and safe that's that's all that matters really like. Um, anything can happen. Do you know what I mean? There's, there's a million things like you know, best laid plans and all that stuff. Um, so I guess, yeah. I mean, I would I would like for both me and Rose to always be around for them. You can't always guarantee that, but that's that's what I'd want. You know, I feel like we're such a good team and we we we've done all right so far. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I feel like we're quite quite good at. Being parents and you know the house for every, everything else that stresses me out in my life and all the anxiety and worry that I have, what happens within these four walls isn't part of that. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like at home is my kind of safe place because I feel like we've got such a good thing going on, and this could be like some sort of foreshadowing kind of, <laughs> uh, you know famous last words kind of thing looking back on this podcast in a few years time <laughs> when I've turned to drink and pissed it all up the wall and <laughs> not allowed to see my kids anymore um, but for now you know things are pretty great in that respect and I guess I just kind of want that to keep going like I feel like my home life with the girls and you know all three of them is is so good that I was kind of hope for more of the same to be honest, um, which think- is dev- very different from what I had. Yeah, it was a lot a lot rockier for me as a kid. But I don't want to sit here and play my violin because there's you know people had it much worse than me. People I know, so yeah. I can't even make out like I don't you know had the worst childhood around because I didn't. But you know, it wasn't great. I guess growing up now is a lot different from when you grew up as well with just things like, just with how technology changed and yeah. everything like that. I mean, I mean, the internet's the big one, yeah. Exactly. Even even with the eight years between us, I don't really remember a time where I couldn't access the internet. Mm-hmm. At least, well, I mean, in our house, it was a bit slower to, yeah. <laughs> ad, ad, you know, adopt it than maybe most. I remember yeah. when, I, when we kind of first got online and I'd really only use internet to get cheat codes for for games <laughs> yeah um i remember when yeah way before all that stuff and we had encyclopedia britannica yeah in like, the house like volumes of books and things and um even before we, we had the internet to had a computer and you'd have encarta on a cd rom that was like an encyclopedia and that was pretty much all i used it for um yeah, I remember all that stuff. I mean, seems weird to think about it now, but 
I guess I'm kind of grateful that I didn't have that pressure of social media as a kid. And I do kind of worry that the girls might struggle with that growing up. Just having everything visible for everybody. Like, I'm quite grateful that most of my childhood and especially my teenage years was off record. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, I mean, I can't imagine, you know, being a kid now where you can see... Or not even a kid, but like if you think the teenagers of today that have got all their stuff online, all their worst bits and photographs and not even photographs, but the things that they say and, you know, pouring their hearts out online and all the, you know, stupid and hateful and all all the shit that people say online. Imagine when they have kids and their kids can look back and see what their parents were doing when they were teenagers. That must how how that must change the dynamic in a house and in a parent child relationship. Like I've got a handful of photographs that I've seen of like mum from when she was, you know, our age or younger. Yeah. You know, I haven't got access to her Facebook posts from when she's moaning about whatever was going on or do you know what I mean? Yeah. I think about these people now almost see who their parents were sleeping with and, you know, what, you know, sessions they were on and all the rest of it, like how they're getting mashed on a weekend. And imagine trying to discipline your kid when they've got photo evidence of you gurning your face off. <laughs> like, I just don't know how that's going to affect yeah. parenting in the future. Um, and I'm quite glad that I think I missed the boat on that one. Yeah, just for the most part. I mean, I've still yeah. got some embarrassing stuff out there, but it's not as bad as it could have been. Yeah, you kind of just a few years just ahead, wasn't it? I guess just a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Um. Well, we'll start kind of wrapping this up. I still got a few kind of questions I wanted yeah. to ask you. Um. What do you wish you had just more time for, like to do? Hmm. I feel like there's things that I'd I'd. I want to do but it's a question of motivation more than time I feel like if I wanted to do anything I could make time for it you just have to sacrifice other things Um, like you know me I play a lot of video games I feel like I could do less of that and more exercise is the big one I feel like I'd like to take better care of myself Um, but I don't because I choose to spend that time in other ways so I don't really feel like there's things that I wish I had more time for. I guess it's just, well, I mean, yeah, maybe it could be a question of time. If I had time to do both, that would be cool. So yeah, like I'd like to exercise more. Um, I don't read as much as I used to. I used to read every day. That's how I'd go to bed, go to sleep, just read. Whereas now I read Reddit and listen to podcasts and stuff. But maybe that's not such a bad thing. It's just a different kind of media, isn't it? Yeah. If you could go back and speak to yourself at any particular point in your life, um, when would you like what? How old would you be when you go speak to yourself, and what advice would you give it? Probably when I moved out at seventeen, I'd taught myself out of getting into debt. Mm. I'd t- tell myself how to balance books 
and you know survive on little money and talk myself into getting into tiring sooner um i think if i'd done it back then if i'd you know got my portfolio together and got my ass in gear back then for a start the standard was lower um you know you look at tattoo magazines from the early 2000s and the stuff that would make the front cover of a magazine then would get laughed at now um but there was less tattoo artists there was you know the internet wasn't as prevalent and there was less to compare it to so it was more impressive um so i think if i'd kind of got back on it then i'd be a lot further ahead than i am now but you know it's the same at the same time it's like i'm happy where i am now and maybe i wouldn't be there if i'd done all that stuff do you know what I mean? I feel like maybe I had to struggle through debt and stuff and get myself back on my feet. I mean, I'm not still still not debt free, but I'm not as crippled by it as I was. Hmm. Um, and yeah, I feel like maybe I needed to do that to to be happy now. So maybe I wouldn't say anything. Maybe I just let him crack on. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I always think it would be weird to try and speak to yourself. I don't, I don't think a lot of the times I would have actually mm. listened to what I had to say. Yeah, exactly. I think I was so dead set on always what I wanted to do that I'm not sure if I would have taken any, any advice I had to give. Yeah. Have you seen that film About Time? No. You should watch it. It's really good with like Bill Nye and uh, Domhnall Gleeson. And um, long story short, it's about this like genetic thing in this family where all the men can travel back in time. And only to a place where they were, so they're back in their own bodies. Okay. And um, there's a part where this guy does it and then comes back to the future kind of thing. But his kid isn't the same kid. Because when he's like altered the course of time, you know, he's it's when the kid was conceived, it was a different sperm that got to the egg. Right. And made a different kid kind of thing. Yeah. And he's realised, like, that's created a point in time where he can't change things from. Because if he does, his kids won't be his kids. They'll be different versions of his kids. Um, And I think about that a lot. I think, like, if I ever, you know, it's that whole butterfly hurricane kind of thing. And, yeah, I don't know. I'm I'm happy where I am now. I mean, you know, I've obviously things aren't perfect and there's still stuff to work on, but for the most part, I wouldn't want to change things and not have what I've got. Yeah. Um, is there any st- things you, like, really strong memories you have about me, you and Semfer and Raoul growing up together or, like, anything you really remembered quite well? Things I remembered quite well. Hmm. Uh, just experiences or events? We, we used to build dens a lot. Yeah, we used to build a lot of dens. So we'd go out on the top land and gather, like, logs and branches and twigs and stuff and sticks and pile them up around trees and make little shelters and stuff. I always liked doing that. Um, hmm. Do we ever get into trouble together or anything? <laughs> like not in... together, 
No, but again, because the age gap was so different, so big that there wasn't, you know, by the time I moved out, you were like nine. Yeah. So you were still a little bit too young to be kind of running around doing the dumb shit I was doing. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I remember always looking up to like kind of you and your friends there, like... I have a really yeah. strong memory of... You remember the yellow gates we used to have? Mm-hmm. Um, and you used to stand at them and like shout at me and my mates. That's exactly what I say. I'd be like, Joe Fish. Joe Fish, yeah. I still see Joe, Joe, Joe Dixon, yeah. yeah. A lot. Um, last question. Uh, what would a perfect day look like for you right now? What would a perfect day look like? I'll give you scope to do pretty much anything. Wow. Um, hmm... Would it be a day off or would I be working? I guess the fact that I'd even consider going to work on a perfect day kind of tells you a lot about my <laughs> career choices. Um, I think the perfect day for me is going to vary depending on when you ask me <laughs> in terms of how I'm feeling and what I feel like I need. Okay. Right now, I feel like the perfect day would involve some family time, probably probably a lion. What time are we getting up? with... We're getting up at about 10. Okay. I don't want to waste the day, but at the same time, it's rare that I get to sleep in past nine these right. days. What well, time like, did you go to bed? The night before? Yeah. Realistically, it's probably about two. Okay. So, I'd have been playing Destiny. <laughs> so, <laughs> get a solid eight hours, which is double what I got last night. Um, And then, nice breakfast, fry up. Before you ask. <laughs> no mushrooms or tomatoes, though. It's disgusting. No caveman. Um, then probably do something with the family. Like, I don't like to waste a day. Like, it's easy to just say, like, you know, spend the day relaxing or whatever. But I'd like to do stuff. Go out somewhere. Go see something interesting. Go drive somewhere I've never been before. Um, yeah, go explore something. Go somewhere new. And then, hopefully, no tantrums or explosions from either end of a child's body. Um, and then, a nice evening with Rose. Watch a film or something nice. She'll go to bed relatively early, and I sit and play more Destiny for a few hours. Not far off what happens on most of my days, I have to be honest, by the line. <laughs> apart from the line and the fry-up, everything else is pretty standard. <laughs> I think those are pretty fixable, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's not really beyond the realms of possibility, really. But yeah, like, I, that's what I mean. Like, I'm I'm happy with my lot at the moment. You know, I, the things that I want to, you know, that I need to improve it aren't completely out of reach. Yeah, everybody wants more money. It'd be nice not to worry about financial things. But other than that, can't really complain too much. Um, yeah, that's good. Cool. Cheers, well, thanks for doing this. No worries, man. Thank you.